This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and I'm so glad you're here at Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist who's lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for 30 years. And I know you have a lot of choices of what you listen to, so I really am so glad you're here at SelfWork. I started about five years ago to extend the walls of my practice. What I really wanted to do with SelfWork was give a very diverse kind of roadmap to what therapy can do, what mental health treatment can do of any kind. And that, of course, includes things like tapping, which I'm going to talk about pretty soon, somatic exercises, mindfulness, meditation, not just talk therapy, all kinds of things we talk about that are going on in the mental health field currently, internationally really. Before we start today's episode, I want to thank C. Mayhew, who left me a review for Perfectly Hidden Depression on Amazon, and it's from the United Kingdom, which is just thrilling to think that my book, which has been actually translated into seven different languages, is being read internationally. So he or she says, I started reading the book and it resonated so quickly. I also watched the podcast, fascinating and poignant. I've not finished the book yet, but I've already sent two more copies to close friends. Excellent and recommended. Wow, thank you so, so very much. Hope you're still listening to the podcast so you hear this. I really appreciate it. I'm busy writing a workbook for Perfectly Hidden Depression, and I'm excited that maybe it will get accepted and come out in the near future. Now let's turn to this episode. I think some of the most poignant messages I receive are the ones from people who love someone that they're watching become less and less like themselves and are frightened about what's going on or what could be going on. I received an email this week from a wife who's very concerned about her husband. We'll call him John, she says. He always has an excuse for his extremely busy schedule. Over the past several months, he's been acting very differently and has been more open about his unhappiness and will even admit to being depressed. He's also very confused. I came upon your podcast and book as I was searching for stuff about midlife crisis. My husband has said that he thinks he may be going through one. We started couples therapy and are doing EFT. I think she means emotionally focused therapy there. It's a little unclear, but he'll say things like, I don't think this is what's really wrong, or she, meaning the therapist, is focusing on why I'm smiling during the session when really the problem is that I'm unhappy. I responded to this woman who wrote this email, and we went back and forth, and she said, you know, I'm sort of really wondering if it's burnout. So I wanted to talk about the relationship between burnout and perfectly hidden depression, of course, all three could be present, a midlife crisis, burnout, and perfectly hidden depression, but I could only cover so much in one episode. The listener email today is also someone asking about perfectly hidden depression, but this time about her own potential for it as someone who also suffers with generalized anxiety disorder. She says she got better with therapy and meds, but now off meds, she's angry and irritable. She's asking if I have any idea of what could be going on, and hopefully I can bring a perspective to what she's saying that might be helpful. So in this episode, sponsored by Athletic Greens, we'll try to pull apart burnout and perfectionism that's become onerous and burdensome to the point of someone admitting depression.
As you've heard me say a thousand times if you're a regular listener of self-work, depression can look very different from one person to another. Basically, there are many roads that lead to Rome, as the old saying goes. Burnout can certainly be tied in with depression, as can a midlife crisis, as we talked about earlier, and as can destructive perfectionism and what I've called perfectly hidden depression. Let's first talk about burnout. The term has certainly been used a lot lately, talking about pandemic burnout, and our medical professionals struggling with not only added pressure and long hours, but much more death. They're often there, in fact, in being Lou a family, or they are the last person to hear someone's voice before they're intubated, and knowing in that case they are likely to die. And so these medical professionals are carrying the burden of that. It was in the 1970s that the American psychologist Herbert Freudenberger described the perfect storm that can occur when an extremely stressful environment and an intensely self-sacrificial response combine to create what he termed burnout. Let me say that again. The perfect storm that can occur when an extremely stressful environment and an intensely self-sacrificial response combine to create what he termed burnout. In 2019, it was recognized by the World Health Organization as a unique occupational phenomenon, although our common cultural use of the term encompasses many roles or jobs that demand much time and effort. But again, they're stressing it's not a diagnosis. Burnout is not a diagnosis. As of yet. The major symptoms or dynamics that can develop over time in burnout are described as overwhelming exhaustion or intense listlessness, meaning you just can't gather your energy, you don't care, feelings of cynicism and detachment from the job itself, and what begins to be tangible ineffectiveness and at its worst deterioration into actual depression. So what does this look like on a day-to-day basis? You might never seem to feel rested or you feel as if you drag yourself from task to task, you begin to see the work you're doing as not having any meaning, maybe even decide that the job has never been what it was cracked up to be, the purpose of the organization you work for is tainted, or you see the people you serve as manipulative or not worthy, and actually this begins to cause gradual cracks in your own performance. As you begin to hide mistakes or things not accomplished, You avoid any kind of conflict and are defensive when others around you might be concerned about you. My way of thinking about it is, what you may say to yourself is, my job has become my enemy. It's not something where I feel productive, not something I look forward to doing. And then you start making a resentment list against your job, while also not knowing exactly where that resentment belongs. Does it belong with you or with the job? Some days it may feel like you simply need to just adopt a different attitude. Other days, you could be convinced that whatever meaning and fulfillment the job used to have, it has lost that for you. So one day, you could be up and the next horribly down. One of the dangers that all my sources stated in my looking up burnout for y'all was that if burnout is allowed to keep on going, it can become very dangerous. It can devolve into a severe depression as, again, you don't know where to assign blame. So let's contrast burnout with perfectionism, basically destructive perfectionism. There are really some interesting correlations between perfectionism and burnout that are in the research. I'll try to break those down for you. There are things called perfectionistic strivings that are not correlated with burnout. So what are perfectionistic strivings? That means you're naturally someone who strives for excellence, but you can also take mistakes in stride. 
Your eye is on the process of learning and growing, so you're more than likely to avoid burnout. Then there's its cousin, perfectionistic concerns, and those are different. That's when you experience grave concern about how others might be judging or evaluating you. You might think about how you're doing all the time in others' eyes. You're not focused on process, but completely on perfect performance, not only meeting but exceeding the expectations of others. And those perfectionistic concerns are therefore different and much more apt to lead to classic depression and burnout. I'm thinking about some of the Olympians I'm watching right now gather their trophies, and you can tell the ones that are really enjoying the process that maybe they don't do as well as they thought, but they're smiling and cheering. And then you can see the people that are devastated when they don't do well. So how might burnout and perfectionistic concerns mesh together. This could look like an increase in your tendency to compare yourself very harshly to others and then feel increasingly inadequate. Maybe you're unable to prioritize your to-do list as everything on it feels equally important. Your head could always be lost in your work and you might again turn away from others who just don't understand the pressure you're under, that kind of isolation, because burnout is hard to talk about. So perhaps what binds burnout and perfectionistic concerns together is the lack of fulfillment. Whether or not that's about burnout or never feeling as if you're good enough or you can succeed enough, what can then lead to is a growing emptiness about the hours of the day you spend at work or even with perfectionism in your personal life. So a lack of fulfillment and emptiness. I also want to stress what I talked about in last week's episode, 268. Not all perfectionism is related to trauma, but perfectly hidden depression is. Now, burnout may or may not have something to do with unresolved trauma, but if it does, for example, let's say you chose a profession in order to please or to escape a shaming voice inside your head, or you took it on because you were supposed to, then burnout could definitely be tied to early trauma that's unresolved. Can you hear that? Because what you're doing is actually tied in with some kind of trauma you had that you may not have chosen to do, so your burnout might actually be accelerated. And that's due to the fact that there's unexpressed emotional pain underneath the emptiness that you feel. So what I might say to someone who's burned out in front of me, doesn't feel this fulfillment and feels empty, I might say, what would you feel if you didn't feel X, Y, or Z? So in this case, it would be, What if you allowed yourself to feel something, if you felt something other than emptiness? What feeling might be there? Another question might be, what would you feel if you weren't so busy trying to figure out if the resentment you feel is you or your job? Again, whatever their emotional or mental focus is on, what if you shifted the focus? What other emotions might be there? Anger? Sadness? Fear? There's one more way that burnout fits in with perfectionism. And it's within the most destructive type of perfectionism that's studied, what's called socially prescribed perfectionism. What is that? It's perfectionism that's fueled by a felt need or an obsession with meeting the expectations of others around you. It's different from when you expect perfection from yourself or when you expect perfection from others. You think other people, you perceive that other people expect perfection from you and your whole life is geared toward fulfilling and even exceeding those expectations. It's like you're on a treadmill where you have no control over its speed or incline. 
that kind of perfectionism and pressure is strongly correlated with suicidal ideation and or plan. And that's a frightening aspect of burnout to be considered. Also, children who grow up in families or cultural circumstances where emotional survival involves developing a persona of appearing in control, always being responsible, and never revealing emotional pain can learn to hide that pain through a perfect-looking life. You know, if you listen to self-work a lot, I am passionate about this message. And remember what Freudenberger said, burnout people are people who have an obsession with proving themselves. And if what lies underneath that mask of control are highly critical and shaming inner voices, you may just feel like you have to prove those voices wrong all the time. And that in itself can add to the vicious cycle because you can get burned out doing that. But you have to, and you have to, and you have to, and you have to continue. Before we go on and I get back to John's wife's question and comments, let's hear from Athletic Greens. I had a client ask me if I really used Athletic Greens, and I told her enthusiastically, yes, it's great stuff. So let's hear a wonderful offer they have for self-work listeners. Our partner, AG1, has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens, frankly, because they were interested in sponsoring self-work, and I never recommend something to you without trying it first. With one scoop of AG1, whose taste is somewhere between sweet and tart to me, you'll get 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I love it because whether I'm home and about to go out for a walk or traveling and about to spend time with friends and family... I can start my day proactively, knowing I'm doing something for my own self-care. If you're like me, self-care can get lost for sure. In fact, its founder, after having severe gut issues, realized he was taking over $100 a day worth of supplements, which had their own very complicated dosage routine, so he created Athletic Greens. To make it easy, and because you're a self-work listener, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is to visit athleticgreens.com slash self-work. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Let's get back to John. His wife thinks he may fit the mold of someone with perfectly hidden oppression. And to me, what would make that fit is if he realizes that he's never been someone who can open up about vulnerability. I loved the book, I Don't Want to Talk About It, by Terrence Real. In fact, I quoted him in my own book. Many men still feel as if expressing emotional pain is weak and even seeking help is weak. Let's talk is anathema to them. But as Dr. Real points out, if you don't feel it, you live it. That means that painful memories or events that have been stowed away and not revealed will have a different influence on what you decide to do or feel or say today. So let's say John says, yeah, I've never been one to open up. What I've cared about is what I do for a living. I've been very successful, and my work has been the major emphasis in my life. You can hear the emptiness of that, the lack of fulfillment of that. And that emptiness may supersede his need to look as if he's got everything handled. And what that looks like is he'll begin to admit depression. In fact, I said in my book, yeah, perfectly hidden depression can morph into actual clinical depression or classic depression. So let's talk about what John can do. 
First, let's talk about the smiling that's happening in therapy. My best guess is that he can admit he feels different or depressed to himself, maybe even to his wife, but maybe he's so unaccustomed and probably terrified of what feelings are stowed underneath that he's still putting on a front in therapy. And so he gets irritated that the therapist is focusing on it. Why is she focusing on my smiling? Why? Because it doesn't fit the situation. Like many people with perfectionism, he can say, yeah, I'm depressed, but he can't connect with it. That's something he's never done. He doesn't even have the words to express the pain. They may not be in his vocabulary, but they can be learned. And what I've done with folks like John is I've downloaded a list of emotions and gone over with it. It's amazing to them what actually giving an emotion a name can mean. When you can name it, you're so much closer to feeling it. You can start with very simple words and then move on to more complex emotions. You start with sad, then move to disappointed, then move to inconsolable. You deepen their not only understanding, but their ability to express and find times in their life that they can say, yes, I was inconsolable, and begin to connect with that emotion. That's the first thing that John and his therapist could do. Focus in on that smiling and learn how to connect with those emotions. What else? I'm certainly impressed and happy that he and his wife are talking openly about it, and they're in therapy. However, if he's saying that doing couples work isn't what is needed, then I might suggest switching to one-on-one therapy, where he can focus on finding those words to express what he's struggling to. And here are some suggestions for burnout. Number one is do a pragmatic check on the commitment of your time every day. Track the hours you spend on work as well as other activities so you can see for yourself how much mental and emotional energy you're spending on your work obsession. That'll give you some kind of idea of the severity of the problem. I should probably do this myself because when I get in a real bind or when I have several deadlines in front of me, I know I don't give enough attention to my personal life and I usually have to ask my husband to forgive me and my friends. So I can be very guilty of this, I know. Number two is list the other jobs you've done in your life. Rate them for how much you sacrificed your time and energy to each. Ask yourself why you chose them. Were they an expected thing? Were they the easiest thing? See if there is a pattern that you can trace and write about how that pattern began to develop. Maybe there's something you need to grieve. How have you chosen the things you've chosen in your life? Number three List your values and how they are expressed in your life, both professionally and personally. I think this is so important. I'm going to say it again. List your values, the things that you want people to say about you. I like John because he's so hopeful. I like John because he is a really good leader. I like John because he can be really funny and he brings a lighthearted touch to things. What are your values? He's very spiritual. He's very open. He's very pragmatic. What are your values and how are they expressed in your life, both professionally and personally? This can really be a life changer because you can realize I have these values and I'm not expressing them anywhere. That's how I became a psychologist, but that story's for another day. Number four is to begin to reprioritize. Look at your to-do list. What can come off? what can be delayed, what can be delegated. Get a work mentor who can help you do this and start living a different reality. It'll be tough at first, 
because you have to build time into true self-care. What self-care is, is investing in and spending time on things that bring you truly a sense of joy or ease or comfort. It's spending time on you and on your personal world. Perhaps that can help burnout ease just a bit. In your show notes, I'll also include a link to an episode I did on self-compassion because it sounds like maybe John does not have a lot of that. And maybe those of you who are listening to this don't have it either. So I will include a link about self-compassion. Good luck to John and certainly to his wife. Take care and thank you for your question. Speak pipe message from drmargaretrutherford.com. The listener email for today is from a woman who's a therapist and who tells me she wrote a book in the middle of the pandemic. She has a wonderful question. Hi, Dr. Margaret. I have a question about perfectly hidden depression. I am also a therapist. I want to thank you for the beautiful work that you do in this world. Um, The idea of perfectly hidden depression resonates so much with me because I work with people who struggle with anxiety disorders. And so often I find that the people I work with also struggle with this type of depression. I was blindsided recently, however, um, when I just had the thought that maybe I have it as well. I am a mom to three kids, and I really struggled at the beginning of the pandemic with a lot of anxiety, uh, a lot of health-related anxiety. I I have generalized anxiety disorder and ended up going on some medication, a low dose of SSRI paired with therapy, and it was so helpful. I was sleeping again, feeling really good, and I decided to try getting off the medication about a year later. And this is where my aha moment happened. When I got off the SSRI, I felt really different. I felt like I was really irritable and impatient. I was yelling. I didn't like that. That really didn't line up and doesn't line up with my values as a parent. And I also found that um, I just didn't seem to see things in color in a way, like nothing really felt good or exciting. And So it made me wonder if I struggle with this kind of depression and definitely as a high achiever, you know, someone who wrote a book in the middle of the pandemic, I wonder about this for myself. Any thoughts would be so helpful. So I'm not a psychiatrist or a medical doctor. I can't make some kind of comment on the whys and hows of antidepressants, although I did do an episode that was about a psychologist's view of meds, which I will also share with you in the show notes. But I can certainly comment on the rest of this listener's story. First, I want to say you're very welcome. Every one of y'all bring me so much joy and fulfillment through your comments and questions. I feel like self-work is just one big journey for us all. For those of you who don't know what general anxiety disorder is, here's some symptoms, persistent worrying or anxiety about a number of areas that are out of proportion to the impact of the events, overthinking, lots of worst-case scenarios, perceiving situations as events as threatening even when they aren't. Difficulty handling uncertainty, being indecisive and fearful of making the wrong decision. can be irritable. Inability to set aside or let go of worry. You can't relax. And sometimes difficulty concentrating or the feeling that your mind goes blank. And physical signs are fatigue, trouble sleeping, muscle tension, trembling, nervousness, sweating, stomach issues, and irritability. Okay. I've had patients with GAD, as it's called, who regularly are bombarded with intrusive thoughts, even visualizations of terrible things happening to their loved ones or them. That's obviously severe, but I've also seen someone who I diagnosed with this whose worry was fairly constant but not as dramatic. So 
What her diagnosis, as well as her response to therapy and meds, suggests is that although the listener is someone with GAD and was triggered by the pandemic, as many were, her system was able to respond very positively to therapy and meds. So she could adapt. She could allow herself into a different emotional and cognitive space. But she was also writing a book. Hmm, that adds another dimension, doesn't it? Since I've done it myself, I know the immense concentration and energy that that takes. So this person is someone who also challenges herself to do the hard things and may not realize when she's overwhelmed, especially if it's not in the old or familiar way of intrusive worry. So that might be important. Actually, something else is that anger and irritability came up for her when she was yelling with her children, for example. So it's kind of interesting that when she wasn't lost in as much anxiety, anger was waiting for her in the background. Anger about what? I don't know. But I'd wonder with her if there's anger about old trauma that she's never explored. So without the anxiety, it was sort of like the anxiety was the curtain over the trauma. And then the curtain opened and there's the anger back behind there. So the pandemic may have first triggered her worry. And then she did therapy and took meds that was taken care of. Again, her anxiety greatly lessened. But then off the meds, here come feelings that she's not at all accustomed to. Maybe that anger is part of grieving. Maybe the anger could be being stirred up by something else, or again, it's been waiting for her to discover it. Perhaps it was underneath that worry all along. I remember one time I asked my own therapist, when will I stop being so angry? I don't like being angry. It felt like every session was about my anger, mostly toward the way my childhood had occurred. But when I first started therapy, was that the case? Mm-mm, no, ma'am. It wasn't until I'd gotten through other feelings that I allowed my anger to surface. And it was unpleasant. So is this part of perfectly hidden depression, as she wonders? You bet it can be. Again, I'll ask the question I asked a few minutes ago. If you weren't so worried, what else might you feel? Maybe, for her, it was anger. I'd recommend this listener go back into therapy, but this time without medication, and see what could be underneath. And by the way, congratulations on that book. Again, thank you for being here at Self Work. Each of you listening means so much to me. You can reach me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can join me at my Facebook closed group at Facebook.com slash group slash Self Work. There's so many people there that have so much wisdom. It's funny. It's supportive. We'd love to have you there. We're an international, very diverse group. So again, you'd be welcome there. You can subscribe at DrMargaretRutherford.com and you'll get a weekly newsletter, which is a very easy way to keep up with my podcast and blog post. So once again, thank you for being here. Please take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.